I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Before this episode published, I called Tiffany Horn. I wanted to make sure she knew what was coming. I wanted to let her know that we begin with her brother, Trevor. She said to me, I put my love for him in this box in my heart, and I don't open it often, because it's too painful. But she insisted, he should be seen. He deserves it. And just so you know, this episode of Hitman might be hard to hear. Listener discretion is advised. A Blade of Grass There was this single blade of grass on Trevor's cheek. When the police found him on the morning of March 3rd, 1993, he was lying in his crib, wearing his white and blue PJs. One of the nurses would later testify that he was given a bath every evening before bed. They were very thorough. And the nurse, she knew that grass couldn't have been there by accident. He stayed in his wheelchair any time he went outside. If he played, she said, it was on the rug or on the quilt in his room. The prosecutors argued that the grass had to have come from the killer's hands, that he wrapped one hand around the boy's nose and mouth and the other around his trach opening and left behind that plate of grass. I came across the crime scene photos of Trevor last year and I tried not to look. It almost felt disrespectful. But this is the reality of what happened to him. As Tiffany said, I owed him a moment of acknowledgement of seeing him. I understand if you've been trying to put Trevor out of your mind. If you'd rather I tell you more about Motown or this crazy book hitman or the fringe publisher behind the murder manual, or maybe you just want me to hurry up and get to the part where they catch the killers. But anytime someone tells me, oh, it's just a book, it's just a book, it's just a book. I remember that a hitman entered a quiet home in the middle of the night and smothered an eight-year-old child. I remember that blade of grass. It wasn't an accident. Trevor wasn't collateral. His death was all part of the plan. It was the plan. Trevor had to die in order for Lawrence to inherit Trevor's money. 
but Millie had to die so that Lawrence could inherit all of it. I'm Jasmine Morris from iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. This is Hitman. It took 18 months for detectives to complete their investigation into the triple murder of Trevor and Millie Horn and Janice Saunders. But it only took one day for police to establish a prime suspect and a motive. Millie had seen this coming. She knew. She was very fearful for Trevor's life. Millie's sister, Marilyn. And she was also fearful for herself because she always said, I will not die in an airplane crash. If something ever happens to me, it's Lawrence Horn. And all the sisters were there and we laughed about it. We were like, Millie, he's crazy, but he's not that crazy. She actually said that to you? She said that. She said, if anything ever happens to me, you all make sure that Lawrence Horn is never alone with Trevor. Lawrence never took responsibility for Trevor. Even on the day he was born. I mean, he didn't even show up for the birth. So he had no connection to this child at all. He showed no interest. My brother being sick was such a turnoff. He totally rejected him. And that was when my mom was finally really done with my dad, which is, looking back, really sad for her. But I think she knew it just was never going to go the way she wanted it to go with him. And so here's where I need to tell you about how and when Trevor's life suddenly became valuable to Lawrence Horn. Remember, when Trevor and his twin sister, Tamielle, were born three months premature, Trevor was really sick. He'd been born with underdeveloped lungs. But by the time he was one, he was exceeding doctors' expectations. He was doing really well. And then, one day, he went in for something routine at Children's Hospital in D.C. And there was some kind of accident. He was without oxygen for seven or eight minutes, leaving him with significant brain damage. They put him in a coma. You know, he didn't give us very much hope. And they talked to Millie about removing him from life support. So she talked to us about it. And we said, Millie, you know, it's your decision. Because they said he would be no more than a vegetable. She still wasn't sure what she was going to do. And so Millie went to his room. And... Trevor opened his eyes, looked at her and smiled, and that was the answer. Doctors told Millie to put Trevor in a care facility. They said that caring for him would be too much of a burden on her and her family. Millie refused. Here's Tiffany. I mean, she learned how to be a nurse. Like, who does that? (laughs) She definitely did. She knew his care better than the nurses that she hired, and she would fire them if they didn't do what she wanted them to do. Millie made sure that Trevor had a life the same as any other child. At a pool party, he's in the pool. (laughs) The nurse and Trevor and Millie, they're in the pool. Halloween, he had his costume. He got dressed up. Actually, I remember two. One was a clown. Another one was Peter Pan. 
I said he would never talk. Trevor learned to talk. He used to say, I love you. His favorite story was Three Little Pigs. He was so smart. I would say, the wolf would huff and he would puff. He would be laughing so much. Here's John Marshall, a lawyer and close family friend. He was doing better and better and better and defying the odds. You know, sounds corny, but by dint of determination of his mother and sheer love. That's who Millie was. She was determined and willful. It's like she never questioned what insurmountable things she had to do to protect the ones she loved. It reminds me of this story Marilyn told me about their childhood growing up in South Carolina during Jim Crow. Our family decided that we would get a better education at an integrated school. It was horrible. I just couldn't believe that people could be so mean to me because of the color of my skin. And there was this guy on the bus, it was a white guy, and he was bigger than me and older than me, and every day he would push me. And one day I decided I am not going to take that anymore. So when he pushed me, I pushed him back. And of course he pushed me down on a seat and he's beating me up. I mean, he's really beating me up. And Millie, Millie came to my defense. Millie stepped in and the boy stopped beating Marilyn and started in on Millie. She was badly hurt. She had to be taken to the hospital. Her shoulder was dislocated. She was not going to stand by and let somebody hurt her sibling. So that's the way she was. She was our big sister. It wasn't until about three years after the accident, when it became clear just how challenging and expensive it was going to be to care for Trevor. That's when Millie decided to pursue a lawsuit against Children's Hospital. John Marshall and Howard Siegel represented her. Here's John. This was not a case where this family was going to make millions of dollars. This was a case where whatever money that was going to be received out of the matter was going for Trevor's use. And that was Millie's goal from day one, was just, how do I take care of him? So John helped the family bring a lawsuit against Children's Hospital. I had been in touch with Lawrence. He called and we talked about it and I explained to him the cases we saw it was at its core, Millie and Trevor. They had the bond. That was the emotional heart of the case. As we've heard from Tiffany, Lawrence was barely a father to Trevor. Even still, the lawyers felt Lawrence should be listed in the suit. They thought it played better to a jury. The idea that this estranged couple came together to fight for their son. Here's Howard Siegel, John's co-counsel. The first time I ever met him was at the trial. He made a good impression. He was a big, nice-looking guy. And Lawrence played his part. John and Howard went back and forth with the hospital's insurance company for months. Finally, they got a settlement offer they thought was fair. This is a really important moment. And so for the next couple of minutes, I'm just going to let John and Howard tell you what happened next. They offered a significant amount of money and Millie was clear this was going to Trevor. Every lawyer is different, but our philosophy was if you get to a point where you can look the client in the eye and say, you know, we can't guarantee you're going to do better, 
And this number in this kind of a case will, if we invest it wisely, that he will be able to be taken care of. So Millie was fine. Lawrence Horn was sitting at council table with us. And uh, Lawrence turned to us and he said, uh, that's not enough. And I turned to him and I said, what do you mean that's not enough? It turned out that uh, Lawrence Horn threw a, a major bomb into the settlement. He wrote down on a yellow pad with a red pen, a million dollars times 10%, which was the interest rate back then, is 100000 a year. And he said, I came here expecting this for me. I turned to him and I said, what makes you think you're entitled to one nickel of this child's money? And he looked at me and he said, Trevor lives through me. I assumed he meant that because Trevor was profoundly disabled and could not enjoy life, that when Lawrence took his money and rode down Hollywood Boulevard in a BMW, that Trevor would be enjoying it. I was stunned. I've just never been so shocked by anything anybody said to me in, in my life. It was the first time he had revealed himself, and we were floored. It had just never been discussed that the parents were going to get any money at all. It just never came up. From that point on, he just dug his heels in. We took a recess. I went out in the hall with John Marshall. And um, I said, uh, I have just looked into the eyes of pure evil. I said, this man scares me. It was the way that he said it. It was chilling. It was detached. It was matter of fact. Lawrence Horn's only concern was what he was going to get out of it. In 1990, the Children's Hospital settlement came through, and the family was awarded $2 million, with roughly half of that going into a trust for Trevor, and $375,000 going to Millie, which she used to buy that big house in Silver Spring, with a whole wing devoted to Trevor's care. Lawrence walked away with $125,000. Millie's sister, Marilyn. He felt that he got cheated, that he should have gotten more money, and it was all her fault. As long as Lawrence was working at Motown, the majority of Trevor's medical bills were covered, and the settlement money would go into that trust. But then Lawrence lost his job, and by 1993, Trevor had exhausted the lifetime maximum benefits on Millie's insurance. And we had to go to court for the first time to ask for some money to be used for Trevor's care. Which meant that every month now, $26,000, the cost of Trevor's care, was going to come out of Trevor's $1.7 million trust fund. All of this timing was because these policies had run out, and now we were cutting into Trevor's money. There was no accident about this timing. This was all done to maximize the return to Lawrence. I remember Millie being very wary, very agitated that something was amiss. And of course, she was 100% right. A month later, she was killed. And as we're about to learn, 
Lawrence Horn had been planning this for a very long time. We'll be right back. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. When you think about hitmen, you probably imagine the ones you've seen in movies. Like John Wick, Jason Bourne, James Bond with his double-O license to kill. They only kill bad men. Men who deserved it. The Hitman book plays on these same tropes. The writer, Rex Farrell 
insists that he's, quote, the last recourse in these times when laws are so twisted that justice goes unserved. But in this story, the mark was a defenseless child and two mothers. So I know we've been jumping around a lot in this story, telling you different bits of pertinent information. But for the rest of this episode, I'm going to walk you through Lawrence's plan. This wasn't just something that was done in a vacuum where my dad, in a crime of passion, just murdered them, which is not okay either way. But there was a lot of planning. There was a lot of time that passed by within the planning. There was money exchange. About a year before the murders, in the spring of 1992, Lawrence took a trip back home to Detroit and reconnected with family. Here he is talking about that in a deposition. Um, you drove to Detroit. Did you do it in one day? Yes. You know how far it is to Detroit? Seven hours, 500 miles. Okay. And where did you stay in Detroit? At a relative's. What other relatives did you visit when you were in Detroit? Tommy Turner. And how's he related to you? Oh, he's my mother's sister's son. Lawrence hadn't seen his cousin, Thomas Turner, in 20 years. Turner would later take immunity, but according to his testimony, Lawrence talked about his divorce and said, quote, that he was having a problem seeing his children. Turner didn't even know that Lawrence was married or had kids until this visit. But that's when he told Lawrence about his close friend, a street preacher and spiritual advisor. Turner drove a truck and the occasional taxi cab, and he'd help this guy drum up business by passing out his cards and flyers that said things like, that love problem must go. Get your luck straightened out. Feel good again. Don't worry, I got it. I see where you just feel like giving up. Listen, at the darkest moment, there is a light. All you need is faith in God, and get this, he has given me to give unto you. I know just what to do for all your problems. That friend, James Edward Perry. Turns out they'd met in prison 13 years prior. Before becoming a spiritual advisor, Perry once shot at a Michigan state trooper in an attempted bank robbery in the 70s. Lawrence would visit his cousin more than once in the spring of 92. And this is around the same time he started showing up in Maryland to see his kids. Remember those recordings we'd played last episode? The ones he'd make while driving around with his daughters. Why are you here? Huh? Why are you here? Why am I here? Oh, I got business. Well, investigators found something else on those tapes. At one point, he recorded himself driving the route from a Days Inn in Rockville, Maryland, the same one Perry would later stay at, to Millie's house. You have to come back by 8. He was not only pretending to be personable or caring for his family, and spending time with his two daughters. That's Lawrence Horn's defense attorney, Jeff O'Toole. It became clear that when he was doing this videotaping, he was, he was planning the escape route for James Perry. These trips out to Maryland were like reconnaissance missions. And remember that moment in our last episode when he asked his two young daughters 
where Trevor's room was. Where's Trevor? Which one? On the left. Right over here? Well, that's not all. Up front? Up there. There was another tape where he asked Tiffany to videotape Trevor and where his room was in the house. He was like, well, I have a video camera. Do you think if I show you how to use it that you can, you know, tape Trevor and, like, show me your new house that you keep talking about? And, I mean, obviously I'm going to do it. He's my dad. I went right in and came right out and gave it to him. He made it seem like this was his way to try to learn more about his son. I wanted him to be that dad. I wanted him to, like, dig deep down and find the love for his child. I felt like he was so disappointed that he wasn't, like, a normal son that it almost broke him. So I was trying to feel sympathetic towards my dad and trying to tell him, no, it's okay. Like, you know, we've created this life, and he's he's perfect. You know, we love him. Tiffany and her dad were close at one point, and he used that. He definitely manipulated me. He was just a liar. Like, he was just a sick person that felt just this obsessive need to, like, prove something or win, and he was willing to throw everything away, even his relationship with me. And it wasn't the last time Lawrence would use Tiffany like this. A day before the murders, late at night on March 1st, Tiffany got a phone call to her dorm room at Howard University. He never called me, but he asked me whether my mom was going to be flying out the next morning because he wanted to talk to my sister. And so I told him that my sister, if she wasn't home, would probably be at my aunt's house. I called my mom right after I got off the phone with him. He was like searching for information, which I found odd. Tiffany said over the course of their 10-minute call, he asked her about Millie and Tamiel four or five times. The following evening, on March 2nd, Millie also received a call. I talked to Millie that night about 10 o'clock. She called to tell me, guess who called me? Lawrence called me, and she said, do you know, I was actually nice to him. I talked nice to him for a change. So that's the last time I talked to her. Lawrence was also asking Millie about Tamiel's whereabouts. Here's prosecutor Bob Dean. Lawrence made sure that Tamiel, that twin sister of of Trevor, would not be home the night of the killing. And, you know, we had information that, that, you know, he was careful about that. I, I don't know what that means or shows other than the fact that, you know, she didn't fit into the plans for the inheritance. They ordered a copy of the book from Paladin Press. The investigators? They did. It was like, oh my God, here it all is. It was written out. So there were many similarities, let's say, about what was said in this book and what was done. And some of the evidence that they had uncovered also matched specifics. Just so you know, there's no evidence that Lawrence ever read Hitman. In fact, there's no evidence James Perry read it either. 
Investigators never found an actual copy, but they found the Paladin Press catalog in his apartment with the book's title circled, and they got a copy of the check he made out to Paladin for two books, including Hitman, though that check did bounce. Paladin even shared the order form with investigators, so they believed he ordered it. And the similarities between Rex Farrell's manual and the murders of Millie Horn, her son Trevor, and Janice Saunders are difficult to ignore. I'm going to walk you through some of those now. We've already told you about a few. Hitman instructs in explicit detail, with photographs, how to build a homemade silencer from material available in any hardware store. The silencer is one of the most important tools a professional will ever have. Again, we got that same actor to read these lines. The silenced weapon, when fired, will not draw attention. Lack of attention means more time. More time means getting the job done right. According to the Deputy Chief Medical Examiner for Maryland, Donald Wright's testimony, one of Janice Saunders' gunshot wounds indicated Perry likely used a silencer. A hitman without a gun is like a carpenter without a hammer. It's not very effective. The first weapon, listed in the Basic Equipment Checklist for Beginners on page 21 of Hitman, is an AR-7 rifle, exactly what was used. Hitman goes on to instruct its readers on where to find the rifle's serial number, Here's Bob Dean. It suggested that you drill out the serial numbers to the weapon. Which James Perry did, but beyond obscuring the serial number, Hitman also explains that the gun barrel needs to be altered with a rat tail file as well. Each one of these items leaves its own definite mark and impression on the shell casing, which if any shells happen to be left behind, can be matched to the gun under a microscope in the police laboratory. We found the file in the backyard the file that was used to go into the barrel of the gun. We had that file tested. That file had elements of ammunition on the file. So it's clearly consistent with rubbing through and defacing the interior of a rifle. Hitman suggests shooting at close range to ensure, quote, the desired result has been achieved. It's best to shoot from a distance of three to six feet. You'll not want to be at point-blank range to avoid having the victim's blood splatter you or your clothing. Ballistics showed Millie and Janice were shot from about a foot and a half to three feet away. Aim for the head, preferably the eye sockets if you are a sharpshooter. Lawrence Horn's defense attorney again, Jeff O'Toole. The book suggested shooting the victims in the eye because that was going to be the most assured way to, to make sure they're dead. That's an image from the book that you just can't, you just can't let go. And the reason Rex Farrell recommends the AR-7 in his book, it's a gun that's easily disassembled. The book suggested that you dismantle the gun and the silencer and throw it along the way as you're escaping. So they did a dragnet search of these woods and they found a small piece of a gun, but it was the trigger mechanism only which is an odd thing. They were instructed to break the gun into many pieces and distribute them wherever you, you know, felt like it. We had an analysis done on the pieces of the gun, and according to the FBI expert, uh, they did, he did a rust development analysis. He felt that uh, based upon the weather conditions of March of that year, that uh, they had been outside for you know, the side of the road for, for several weeks, a matter of weeks. And it was clear that this was the weapon, the weapon that was used. If the hit was supposed to look like a burglary, 
mess the place up a bit. Take anything of value that you can carry concealed. There was some disheveling and disturbance of pieces of furniture. There was a bookshelf that was overturned, but it didn't appear that so much was stolen. There were some items that were taken from um, the purse of uh, Mildred. Of course, you can't keep anything. These items have to be ditched along with your work clothes and weapon. Actually, the day of the murder, there was a jogger who found Mildred Horn's credit cards and identification cards that had been taken from her purse hours before. He had done exactly what the book said to do. I've been thinking a lot about accountability as I report this story. Was the book an accomplice of sorts? The courts would later say just that. The story is a whole tangled knot of accountability. It's like that saying, it's turtles all the way down. Lawrence was clearly the mastermind, and sometimes I'm tempted to just look through Perry to see Lawrence. The hitman becomes a tool or a pawn or an instrument to just get the job done. But it was James Perry's hands that killed Trevor. It was his hands that left that blade of grass. Lawrence recorded so many things as part of his plan. The surveillance tapes, the alibi tape, the one where he's standing in front of his TV, clearly displaying the time and date, which was pretty much the exact time of the murders. But there was one other recording the investigators found in the search of Lawrence's apartment, and it took everyone by surprise. You heard an excerpt from this in our first episode. Remember, this call was made from a payphone not far from Millie's house, and investigators believed it was made just hours after the murders. It's a little hard to understand, but basically, you hear Lawrence answer the phone, and then another man, we now know to be James Perry, presumably calling to say the job was done. I gave the call? No. Okay. All right, so I mean, I'm sitting there. Can you, uh... I can take a picture. I can take a picture. Yeah, I'm, you know, right, you know, right. It was cryptic, but investigators believed this meant he was going to take a photograph of Trevor to prove he'd done his job. But the noise of Trevor's alarm was distracting. The noise, you understand what I'm saying? I wasn't able to do that. I didn't, I didn't want to go uh, front way. Was this on an answering machine? Yes, it was on an answering machine. I remember those answering machines. And sometimes if you picked up too late, it would record. Exactly. So is that what happened? I think so. Horn didn't mean to record it. I don't think he did. It cuts off because actually it comes at the very end of this answering machine tape. It literally ran out of tape. The fact that this tape even exists is kind of hard to believe. Lawrence's own defense attorney, Jeff O'Toole. So Lawrence was this person who taped everything. He made a career of taping Stevie Wonder and, and all the different people and the, the songs that the Holland Brothers wrote. He knew how to tape things. Well, unfortunately, he was taping his telephone conversation when Perry called him. That was a tape recording that was accidentally either taped or certainly accidentally kept by Lawrence Horn. What did he have to say about that tape? You know, I think he shook his head, Jasmine, and said sort of, uh, I'm not sure we had the expression back then, but I think he said, it is what it is. Uh, I think he, he wasn't able to say that wasn't his tape. He wasn't able to say that was not James Perry. The tape was was really something you hold up and go, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Was there a smoking gun? Probably the 22-second phone call that Perry made to Horn was was a, a crucial one. Of course, that was made, you know, an hour or so after the murders. 
The plan almost worked. They almost got away with it. Perry left no identifying evidence behind. Lawrence had his alibi, and if Perry hadn't checked into the hotel under his own name, who knows what would have happened. Here's what we're going to talk about next week. Even as investigators tailed the hitman and the mastermind 24-7, wiretapping their phones, building their case, Lawrence was trying to pull off the last piece of his plan, getting the $1.7 million in his son's trust fund. Just one thing stood in his way. Well, a couple things. Millie's sisters. My aunts were really strategic, especially my Aunt Elaine. She made sure to file a civil suit, like, immediately to block my dad from receiving my brother's estate, which is essentially the reason why he had them murdered in the first place. And that became, like, a primary goal, even without him being arrested, because we knew that it was always about power and control, of course, but the money. He wanted that money. Hitman is a production of iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. It's produced and reported by me, Jasmine Morris. Our supervising producer is Michelle Lance. Mark Lotto is our story consultant. Executive producers are Mangesh Hatikidor and me. Mixing by Josh Rogeson, Michelle Lance, and Jacopo Penzo. Our fact checkers are Austin Thompson and Natsumi Ajisaka. Special thanks to Andrew Goldberg, the Montgomery County State's Attorney's Office, and the Criminal Department and Central Files at the Montgomery County Courthouse. Our theme song by Elise McCoy. An additional music written and produced by the students at Dime. Powered by the Detroit Institute of Music Education. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.